welcome to Storytelling. This week's guest is a corporate and motivational speaker, author, philanthropist and educator. She is the author of the best-selling book, A Voice Out of Poverty, where she shares her story of growing up in the slums of India and her journey out of poverty. She has inspired audiences from around the world to take control of their lives and control their destiny, whatever their circumstances. Please welcome Gillian Haslan. Hello, Gillian, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Debbie. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Gillian, can you tell us about your childhood in Calcutta? Well, my childhood in Calcutta, I'll try and go back far back as I can. My parents lost four children, well, two before I was born and two after I was born. The two that were lost before I was born were two sisters. Minnie and Carol, and they passed away before the ages of six months due to abject poverty and malnutrition. And the two after were twins, a girl and a boy, Kimberly and Alan, then they too passed away due to poverty and malnutrition. But in between them, I was born and my sister Vanessa was born. As far back as I can remember, Debbie, we lived in very many people's houses. We were taken from one house to the other, and sometimes People kept us for a few days. Sometimes we were told to move on because people just couldn't keep us any longer. And we stayed under a flight of stairs and people can see the picture. The place still stands to this day. We stayed under a flight of stairs for a very long time with my mom. My mom put us to stay with one of her friends where there was a lot of cruelty and it was very tough, very difficult. My dad at the time was recovering in Salvation Army because we had come back from a place called Dum Dum, where my parents were given a little village school to take care of. But there was a kidnap arranged for my sister, so we couldn't stay there. We had to come back, and that's when we started living under the flight of stairs. When my dad got better and left the Salvation Army, he came and took us from under those stairs and took us to a proper little room in a slum, which was eight by ten feet. We filled water from a tube well. We hardly had any electricity. Electricity used to go for months on end. And to give you an idea, approximately 3,000 people shared three toilets. So that's where I grew up. How did you feel as a child living under some stairs? How did it compare to the scenes around you? Well, to be honest, I think children just get on with it. If you look at children in Syria and you look at children in Ukraine and you look at children in some of the worst conditions on the planet, you will sometimes see the news and they're still playing cricket with a ball and a bat and they're still playing catching or, you know, hide and seek or whatever. But I was a little bit more serious as a child. But if you speak to my sister Vanessa and you ask her the same question that you just asked me, she'll just say, I was having a ball. I really didn't care. I used to be playing with all the street children while Julian used to go and search for food for us because I was a little bit more serious, as I said, and I used to go out 
asking the vendors for food. Sometimes Vanessa used to stand with me. Sometimes they used to splash hot oil on us and tell us to go away. But most of the time, I was the serious one. And I was always trying to help my mom. I was always trying to clean up around the place where we stayed because the place under the flight of stairs, not even two feet from us, people used to wash their clothes, go to the toilet, bathe their children, everything. It was like a proper thoroughfare place where all the housewives and all the men filled water and all the daily chores were done because people don't have their own kitchens and stuff at home. Most of those places are one room little places where people live cheek and jowl with each other. So that's <laughs> what I felt when I was a child. I hardly played, I hardly smiled, and I was hardly happy. You mentioned some of the cruelty that you'd experienced as well, and you dedicate a chapter in your book about a Mrs. Green. Yeah. Do you want to explain why you mention her in this way? Sure. Like I said, when we came back from the city of Dum Dum, in Dum Dum, my kidnap was arranged for my elder sister, Donna, who was a very fair, very pretty at the time. She was a young teenager. And the villagers came and told my parents that if you don't take Donna and leave, the Naxalites of that area will take the other two, that is myself and Vanessa. So my parents had to leave this little place called Dum Dum in the dead of night. We were pretty much like the Want Rap family, only poverty stricken. But we left over, I don't know how many fields we had to cross over and we got back to the city of Calcutta. But because we had nowhere to stay, my dad got a cardiac arrest on the train back and he lost his eyesight. My mom took him straight to the Salvation Army that took care of ex-servicemen at the time and left him there to be cared for. And we went to stay under this flight of stairs. But because we were two little girls and we were very malnourished anyway, we got very, very sick. My mom went to Mrs. Green and said, will you keep Gillian and Vanessa for me? Because they're getting very sick under the stairs, you know, with all the squalor and whatever. Um, Mrs. Green said, of course, Margaret, you know, that was my mom's name. Bring them to me. I'll look after them. And for some reason, she loved my sister, Vanessa. Vanessa's very fair, blonde, very cute. If she stood still, you would think she was a little doll. That's how cute she was when she was tiny. I just wasn't. So she didn't like me for some reason. And one day, uh, I mean, every day we were put on the floor to write our ABC and one, two, three, and whatever it is she tried to teach us. Vanessa was very naughty. She used to throw water on my book. She used to put a pencil mark through my book and... Every time Mrs. Green came in the room, she asked me, who did that? And I never wanted to get my sister into trouble. So I always used to say I did it. And I would be punished till one day from under a little kind of a small, tiny closet, like a, a cupboard, a big flying cockroach started walking across the floor. And she got to know that I was terrified of those cockroaches. So every day as a punishment, she would take me by my ear downstairs, down a flight of stairs, and there was this Indian-style toilet, which was about three feet wide and about six feet in height. And it had these toilets where you had to sit on your haunches and go to the toilet. And every day she would put me in there and put off the light and close the door. But the reason she would put me in there was because the toilet was infested with just hundreds of flying cockroaches. And that traumatized me to such an extent that I lost my voice. I couldn't speak and I just couldn't go on. I was alive, but not alive. 
I was just not a child anymore. I just couldn't understand why somebody would be so cruel to me. And I just remember Vanessa standing outside saying, stand still, then they won't fly. But they were all over me. And that actually had a great impact on me because right up to the age of 14, I kept falling down for no rhyme or reason. I couldn't speak. I was scared of my own shadow. And I basically was the weakest link in my family for a very long time. So you experienced this cruelty and plus you were separated from your parents. How did this separation make you feel? What effect did it have on you? I think you don't think of it at the time because whenever my mom used to visit Mrs. Green, my mom used to constantly say, are you saying your pleases and thank yous? Are you being grateful? Are you helping Mrs. Green with the work? Are you doing as she says? And so we hardly ever got a word in because everything those days was about obedience. And my father had a rule at home that children should be seen and not heard. So that's how we were brought up. But one fine day when my mom did visit and Mrs. Green said to her, don't worry, they're doing really well. They're good children. I just wet myself standing there. And my mom knew that something was wrong. So she said to us, pack your things. I'm going to take you back. And it was the happiest day of my life. I think we walked and walked and walked for hours to get back to the place under the flight of stairs, which is where my mom was living at the time, still living. But we were so happy to go back there. And I was so happy to get away from her. But I remember joking with my little sister, Vanessa, all the way and calling her a witch, etc. And my mom said, stop it. It's gratitude first. So don't forget what she's done for you. But I think with all my mom's hardships and poverty and her need to try to find food for us, with the loss of other children, with her daily chores, I don't think she really understood the impact that it had on me. Throughout this, you also experienced kindness from others as well. Do you want to share some of those experiences? Yeah, I think there's always a silver lining to every dark cloud. So when my father got better at the Salvation Army, he moved us to this little room, as I explained earlier, in a proper slum where we lived. Of course, we were still poverty stricken. We couldn't afford even one meal a day. And I remember standing at the grocery store, which we call a Modi shop, for hours just waiting for there to be no customer. So I could ask him for a little rice and I could ask him for a little dal or a little sugar, just all on credit. But every day he gave us handful of rice, two handfuls of rice, some sugar, some oil in order for us to eat. And he never, ever took money from us. There was the milkman by the corner who gave me milk every day that saved my sister Susan's life and never took money from us. There was the meat man at the top of the road who used to save all of his dried bones for us. And I used to bring it home and make soup because it was very nutritional to have that. And there was the vegetable woman who used to keep all the bad potatoes and tomatoes for us. We used to cut off all the bad parts, cook it and eat it every day. There was the barber that used to cut all our hair and never charge us any money. There were just so many vendors who are actually the poorest of the poor. They were were richer than us because we just never had anything. But they were still... I mean, completely below the poverty line, they had one basket of little items. They sold items at the side of drains, but they gave everything they had. And that has left just such a great impression on me that I wanted nothing more than to go back and to give back to those people for saving our lives. 
And that's something else that I'd like to touch upon because that is exactly what you're doing now because you have set up charities to help those communities that helped you in the past as you were growing up. Yes. I have six charities in Calcutta. I have training institutes for young girls. I have tailoring centers. I have a secretarial school for young girls. I have a play school for little street children whose parents are all, they do labor work. They put tar on the roads and they build bridges. They are bricklayers, those kind of people. So I have these play schools for them. I have food banks for the aged. I have a center for the disabled people to come to take rations every single month. I also have a beautician school for girls. I also have a computer school for girls. And I use a very effective program that my in-laws actually used for UNESCO. And it's called an E3 program, which is education, empowerment, and employability. And I follow this program from A to Z completely. And we have actually managed to get so many young people through this program into jobs, employments, even some into the biggest hotels like Grand Hotel in Calcutta and other hotels, receptionists, customer services, accountants, all of that. How did you transition from this life of poverty to where you are now? Because you went on to work for Bank of America, for example. Yeah, I think it was just desperation. I had to take on the two little ones who were born after Vanessa, which is a brother called Neil and a little sister, Susan, whose life I saved from the man who gave me the milk from the tea shop. I had to bring them up because my mom got cancer and we lost her very early in life at the age of 53. My dad was very elderly and he had had too many cardiac arrests at the time because he had served in the British Army. He had traveled to very many places and life just took its toll. So I looked after the little ones when I was little myself in that slum. When I was 17, I finished school and then my father moved me to Delhi in order for me to find a career. I just did a secretarial course. That was the best thing I could do. I was working for a company where I was literally, again, being harassed and abused like boys who just wanted to sit near you on a bus, come through the window to sit near you and molest you like all the way. When I saw this advertisement in a newspaper for an executive secretary to the CEO of Bank of America. And I was interviewed with 250 girls over months of interviewing, months of testing, months of training. And eventually, I was put in front of the CEO himself when the numbers boiled down from 250 to 180 and 50 and so on. And I just sat in front of him and I just told him, look, I'm happy to do no matter whatever you ask me to do. You can give me two jobs. I have no problem, but I need the money. I have two little ones to bring up. I've lost my mom and I'm desperate. And he just looked at me and said, we'll let you know. And I thought, guess I talked too much. I'm never going to get this job. But two weeks later, there was an appointment letter in the post. And he just said, Jillian, you know, you sell yourself really well. I I loved your honesty and the truth. And I want to offer you the job. And That man changed my life. Of course, I worked from seven in the morning to sometimes 11 and 12 and two o'clock the next morning. I worked very hard. 
but he changed my life. He paid for me to be flown to San Francisco to pick up several awards because I basically went through the ranks of from executive secretary to being the head of charity and diversity for all four branches across India. And they flew me to San Francisco to pick up all the Service Excellence Award, uh, the Bank of America Star Award. I picked up many awards for all my hard work. And he then flew me to London so that I could look and search for my parents' ancestral papers, documents. So people who were born in the UK, so my grandparents, their papers were at the home office. And my parents who were born in India to British parents, but at the time of the British Raj, their papers were at the British Library. But he paid for all the searches to be done. He put all our ancestral documents together and changed my life and flew us all out. That's really special. That's a very special story. Yeah. Gillian, A Voice Out of Poverty, how did it feel to write your book and to share your story? I think the reason I wrote it, Debbie, the reason I wrote it was primarily because I do know after very many years that governments can no longer help every single person out there, especially young ones and children. I don't think charities can do the same. And I really and truly don't feel with the amount of population out there that anybody can solve this problem of abject and acute systemic poverty. And I think one way that I wanted to do it was to share my story and to put my book into every little girl and boy's hands to show them that definitely it's hard. It's it's sometimes impossible And there are times when I want to curl up and never, ever get out of bed. But I think if you want it badly enough, you can find it. You can achieve whatever you want. But how do I tell them that without giving them proof? So sometimes when I go to India, schools actually fill up huge parks of children with three schools and 12 schools and nine schools And I tell them all, I can take you by your hand right now and I can show you where I filled water from a tube well. I can show you where I lived and I can show you where I've come from. And I am just like you. There is no difference. The only difference is I worked very, very hard and I was determined not just to succeed. Because as you know, Debbie, from my book, I've said this many times that success for me is not just making it through yourself, but to go back and to take others with you. And this is what I believe from the core of my heart. So that's what I'm doing. No, I totally agree with you. And you developed a lot of resilience along the way. What would you say has been your main lesson? I think the one main lesson for me would be to not forget who you are and where you come from. I think that's the most important lesson for me. And to understand that you have a voice. And sometimes your voice, people listen to you, but they don't really hear you and they don't really understand what you want them to do. And that's where Toastmasters came in. When I was looking to change my life and to actually try to help hundreds of people like I do now, I was looking for an organization that would help me, but I just could not afford the kind of money that people wanted to train me as a top class or a professional public speaker. Until I came across Toastmasters and I came across the Rotary where they say where leaders are made. And I thought, 
wow, I have a 23-year career in banking, as you know, from Bank of America and RBS. And I thought, this organization speaks to me because it's where leaders are made. And I was so excited. I joined Toastmasters and I have never looked back. Toastmasters have helped me to find my voice, to use it effectively, and to get out there and to speak up for people and women and young people who are in very, very desperate and dire need. And that's exactly what I've done. That's what, you know, Debbie won me all the awards, all the recognition. And it's even actually helped me to write my latest book, which has won a Kirkus Star Review, which to me, I couldn't even believe it when I had won it because only books like Barack Obama or Michelle Obama's book and Mariah Carey's books win all these Kirkus Star Review, but my book has won it. I couldn't be more grateful, but I think I've really got to keep going until I can help many, many more people and get the story out to them so that they, it can help change lives. That's all. Julian, I admire everything that you are doing and I thank you for using your voice in making a difference to others. And I thank you for being a guest on this podcast. Not at all, Debbie. I think you're a great instrument. Without people like you, how would we get our story out there? So I think for me, I put gratitude before everything. So thank you. If you would like further details about Gillian and her book, A Voice Out of Poverty, then please follow the link in the show notes. <laughs>